Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Morning. It is a great privilege to be here. When Scott asked if I would preach on music, I remember thinking, in one sermon? Uh, As he said, the largest book of the Bible is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. So how can we possibly do this? And then as I was thinking about music, and I was thinking about Christianity, and I was thinking about what we call biblical world life view, thinking Christianly about all of life. I thought of my friend Charlie Peacock. Uh, many of you probably know Charlie. He's been a, an important person in Nashville and in my life for many years. And I, I thought about this. Every time I've heard Charlie speak, this is what I walk away with. Wow. That thing that he just talked about is so much bigger than I thought. I thought I understood that, but now I see that it's so much bigger than I thought. As we come to this text today and we come to what the Bible has to say about music and about singing, that's my prayer, is that we would come to see, wow, that is so much bigger than I thought. Will you join me in prayer briefly and then we'll dig into this text. Lord, we do thank you. We pray that you would open our eyes, not only to see music and singing as more important, but help us to understand what the peace of Christ is. Help us to understand what it means to be human. Help us to understand even what it means to live in this world that you've made full of God-glorifying potential. May we love and sing and wonder because we've spent time together in your word and in communion with you, fellowship with each other. Send your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think about this passage. Um, It really is a a passage that's probably familiar to many of you. But I want to say something about this text before we get into the the verse about singing. It starts out, at least in verse 15, where I'm going to start today, talking about let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I think about that passage. I think almost every phrase in that passage is misunderstood by the majority of Christians and majority of students that I work with. When Paul talks here about the peace of Christ, he is not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings. When he talks about the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts, he is not talking about, may you have warm, fuzzy feelings. I was privileged to finally get to see the Eagles a few weeks ago. Anybody get to go to that concert? It was unbelievable. It was amazing. And, and I remember when I was in high school being part of a, of a group where sometimes we would sing Amazing Grace to the tune of the Eagles' Peaceful Easy Feeling. Do you know that? Uh, 
I've got a peaceful, easy, and we would even sing the chorus, uh, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Now, I love that song, Peaceful, Easy Feeling. That is not what Paul is talking about here. And one of the ways you know this is if you look um, over, there's a parallel letter to Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's his letter to the Ephesians. And it's interesting sometimes to see how he develops a topic and expands in one letter or the other letter. Sometimes it's really helpful to go back and forth. And when you look in the letter to the Ephesians, he develops this idea of peace in a really important way for us to understand how big this idea is. It's bigger than just a feeling. As Paul talks about it in Ephesians, he talks about this great mystery that was hidden, but now has been revealed. Now that Christ has come, lived and died and ascended, this mystery, this thing that was hidden, has now been revealed. What is the mystery? The mystery is that God has intended to bring one new humanity out of people that used to hate God and hate each other. That what Jesus has done is he has wrought peace between God and man. It's not so much a subjective feeling that Paul is talking about in Ephesians and here in Colossians as it is the work of Christ where there was warfare between God and man and between Jews and Gentiles. Now Christ has come lived and died in the place of sinners so that we could be reconciled to God. And in being reconciled to God, the Jews and the Gentiles who hated each other, as they're reconciled to God, are brought together. How dare we reduce the peace of Christ to warm, fuzzy feelings? It's so much bigger than that here. And and, and it's an important idea. Even as we think about music, we think about what the church should be, we think about our time in history, we need to understand and recover this. Because as Paul develops this idea in Ephesians, one of the things he says is, look, do you want to understand what grace is? Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 said, grace is God making dead people alive. Nothing less. It's not a peaceful, easy feeling. That's not what's amazing about grace. That it can give you warm, fuzzy feelings. No, what's amazing about grace is you who were dead have now been made alive. It is by grace you have been saved, Paul says, lest or so that no one can boast. And why is that important? Because if you've been dead and made alive, then that means you have nothing to boast about in yourselves or in your culture. And so the things that would keep us apart are undone by the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ, the peace that Christ has wrought for us, is the thing we are to be thankful for. It's our only hope, and it's the only hope for us to dwell in unity with those whom we would never choose to call friends. And that's why Paul says, let let this Peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What Paul's saying here is that this peace must be at the heart of everything. Now, in the Bible, here's what's interesting. Just as we often misunderstand what it means to talk about the peace of Christ, we also often misunderstand what Paul means when he talks about the heart. Because in our day and age, we think of the heart as the place where your feelings live. 
That's not the way the Bible thinks of it. If you wanted to, to, to know what the Bible says about your emotions, where they come from, in the Bible, they actually come from your bowels, from, from the deep, rich part of you. This is why we don't have biblical Valentine's Day cards, right? And so the heart actually is not just your emotions, not where your feelings come from. The heart in the Bible is the center of everything you are. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ has wrought for us, reconciling us to God, should rule at the heart of everything we are. It should rule at the heart of everything we are against cultural taboos, against anything that we may want to boast in or trust in. And he says, for the peace of Christ to rule, the word of Christ much dwell, must dwell in us richly. What is, what is the, the, the word of Christ? It's an interesting phrase. I, I think it's actually best translated the word about Christ. I think what he's talking about here is the gospel itself. This is why the peace that Christ has wrought is a parallel expression with verse 16, the message of Christ or the word of Christ or the word about Christ. There's various ways that it's rendered. But he's saying the same thing, that this message about Christ, the gospel, must dwell in us richly. Richly. Now that's interesting. Because the, when he says, let the, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the you there is plural. So not only is Paul saying that the gospel, the peace that Christ has wrought between God and man, must dwell at the heart of who you are, drive everything, what you think, what you find beautiful, the way you rejoice, the way you mourn, the way you interact with everybody, the way you think this is valuable and this is not, the peace of Christ must be at the heart of all of that. But then he says that's not just for you individually, that's for you as a community. If you've ever heard the phrase that we want to be gospel-driven, that's what he's talking about. And he's saying you don't just need to be gospel-driven as an individual, we need to be a gospel-driven community. Gospel-driven community. And for that to happen, look at what Paul says. You need to sing. Now that's where it seems like he takes a left turn. I don't know if, if we had done a little, a little quiz before we read this passage today and I said, what does Paul say is vital for us to be a gospel-driven community? I don't know if very many of us would have said, oh, well, of course, Kevin, we need to sing. I just don't think that many people would say that. In the church, we would probably say, well, we need to memorize scripture. Sure, that's a great thing. We need to know our theology better. Sure. We, we need to actually get busy and do what the Bible says. Sure, all that's true. But what Paul says here is, for the word about Christ, the peace of Christ to rule, the word about Christ to dwell in us richly, we need to sing. Paul says singing is vital for us to be a gospel-driven community. Why might that be? Why might that be? I think we get a little clue from a famous phrase of Augustine. Augustine fifth century church father from North Africa said this, he who sings prays twice. He who sings prays twice. Now what, is, what does that mean? 
I think what Augustine's getting at is that singing has a way of intensifying whatever we're doing. It's one thing to speak the truth. It's another thing to sing it. It's one thing to say, I praise you, Lord. It's another thing to sing it. It's one thing to say, Lord, this is not right. Everything is broken. It's another thing to sing it. The way God has created us is more than just brains on a stick. It's a phrase Jamie Smith up at Calvin College likes to use. We are not just brains on sticks who just need to get information out and then information in and then live it out. No, God says for the word of God to dwell in us richly, we need to sing. Because what it means to be human is to be one who is more than just a thinking being. You see, singing, singing is embodied. It's embodied. Just think about this. When you sing, the sound comes up. It resonates. Isn't that a rich word? Resonates through your chest cavity. It's formed by your mouth. It goes out. And then you hear it as well. God wants us to remember in singing that Christianity is bigger than just stuff we think about. Do you understand that? And we need to be reminded of that. Because I don't know about you, but I live in my head so much of the time. And singing is one of the ways that God reminds us that we're more than just people who think about things. That Christianity is more than just a philosophy or some abstract ideas. It's something that can and should be sung because it can and should be something that's embodied in a community. Where not only does our voice testify about God and about where we're at, our brokenness, our sorrows, our joys... Not only for us, but to our neighbor as they hear. And then we hear. So it reminds us that we're embodied. It also reminds us as we sing together that we are a community as we hear each other sing. You see, it's one thing for the gospel to dwell in us. It's another thing for it to dwell in us richly. I love this phrase from Scotty Smith, long time ago, youth pastor here and uh, was my pastor down at Christ Community for many years. He talks about this idea. He says that we need both the lyrics and the music of the gospel. Now, I, when I went off to seminary, I remember thinking, I need the lyrics. And I need to know more of the lyrics. I need to understand all my theology better. And what I came to understand after seminary, as I began to minister to students here in Nashville at Belmont, is that not only did they need the word to dwell in them richly, but so did I that it wasn't enough just to know the lyrics. I needed to hear the music. It's one of the things that these old hymns really helped me do. It really helped connect my head and my heart. And I began to, to use some of these hymns with my students and began to see this incredible thing about the way God could build a community this way. And you see this so many times in the history of the church. And yet here's the sad thing. As you look over the history of the church. Too often singing has been seen as auxiliary. Secondary. Of little importance. One of the amazing things about the Reformation. Is the importance of singing. I know, you know we just celebrated the Reformation last year. The 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And for a lot of people they're going to think about. Luther nailing 95 theses on a church door. And how that's when the Reformation started. Actually there's a scholar Robin Lever. Who wrote a book recently on singing in Luther's Germany. And he says you know. 
It is true to say that the Reformation began in 1517 when Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door. But it can rightly be argued that it's only after 1523 when the first hymns appear that the Reformation really begins to take hold. It wasn't just about correcting doctrine. It was about getting the gospel to dwell in people richly. Luther understood this. One of my favorite little uh, quotes from Luther, and he's not a perfect man by any means, but, but he gets the, the importance of singing. And I think we could, we could hear this. He says in, in the 1520s that I've, in order to, here's the way he says it, in order to make a start and to give an incentive to those who can do better, this is the, this is the preface to his first hymnal, which had eight hymns in it, by the way. Eight hymns, but it's a start. He says, in order to make a start and give an incentive to those who can do better, I have, with the help of others, compiled several hymns so that the holy gospel, which now by the grace of God has arisen anew, may be noised and spread abroad. He said, we need the gospel to be noised and spread abroad. abroad. And so I've put out this little hymnal with eight hymns, and I'm issuing a call for German poets to help. Because we don't just need to understand the catechism. We don't just need the Bible translated to German, though those things are incredibly important and necessary. We also need to be able to sing. It's been said of Luther that he gave the German people in their own language the Bible, the catechism, and the hymn book so that they might hear God speak to them in their own language and they might speak back to him through their songs. And you don't understand the Reformation without understanding that full that full development. Now, you may not know this, most people don't, but the Council of Laodicea, this is AD 365, banned congregational singing. Can you imagine what it would be like to come to church and not sing? People would come to church and they would be spectators. Honestly, there's too much of that even in our own day. Maybe you don't have to imagine that much. Maybe church is a spectator sport. Now, we're welcoming and glad to have you. If you're here trying to figure out what is Christianity about, and you're just kind of saying, yeah, I'm kind of just checking this thing out. Don't push me. You know, don't. that's fine, and we're so glad you're here. But, but worship, Christian worship, should not really be a spectator sport. It should be something that we enter in. So they congregational singing is banned in 365 AD. It's not exactly clear how long it takes for that's fully implemented and how thoroughly. There are little pockets of singing breaking out, but it's really John Huss in the 1400s, a thousand years later, who reintroduces congregational singing. You know what happened to him? He gets burned at the stake at the Council of Constance, and as he's dying, he sings a hymn. Now the Hussites basically are dispersed, they scattered, they take off, they, they hide in the hills, but they hold on to their hymn books. We actually have a Hussite hymn book from 1509, which is a few years before Luther even nails those 95 theses to the church door. Singing really matters because worship is formative. If I would if I would hope to have you take something away today, it would be this. Worship is formative, like it or not. When I think about 
how do we want to see this topic as bigger than we might see it? That's one of the main ways I want to see it. Singing matters more than we think because being human is more than just being a brain on a stick. And thus, worship is formative. When you come to church, the DNA of what Christ Presbyterian is about should be clear from the songs we sing. We should be sure that when we come together, we have songs that are honest about struggle and are explicit about the gospel. Because that's what Paul says here in Colossians 3, right? He wouldn't have to say to these people, hey, you need to get along. You need to love one another if it was easy for them to do. Like the fact that he gives them such detailed expressions about how they're to live in the body kind of proves the point that they need help. And he says, you need to sing. The gospel needs to be ruling in your heart, in your community, at the center of who you are, so that you can forgive one another. Why is it hard to forgive one another? Well, because you tend to boast and think you're better than them. What will help you with that? What will help give you courage to forgive one another, to remember that Christ forgave you? And how are you going to remember that and not just kind of know it in your head? Well, sing about it. Be reminded, every time we come together, we sing songs to get the gospel into the deepest part of our hearts. Now, this, was, this became clear to me when we had our 20th anniversary celebration of Belmont RUF. I've done that ministry there now for 23 years. So a couple years ago, we had a 20th anniversary celebration. A lot of alumni came back and gave testimonies. And here, you know what's always humbling for a preacher? is when people come back and give testimony about the impact of the ministry and nobody mentions a single sermon you ever preached. And I I think every preacher I know would say that. But you know what they all mentioned? The songs we sang. Without a doubt. The songs. The songs that taught them that Christianity is not always something that feels like everything's wonderful. The songs that help them understand that a lady like Ann Steele, that gathering song we sang, that lovely source of true delight, like she's this Baptist lady who lived in a little town in England 300 years ago, and yet as she wrestles with God in the midst of her pain and her struggles, we find a a, a resonance, even a communion with those whose rest is one, as the great old hymn says, with this lady. As she says, oh, how soon the pleasing scene is clouded over with pain, My gloomy fears rise dark between, she means between her and God, and I again complain. Do you know how refreshing it was for my students to be able to sing songs like that? Because that's what they were feeling. Even these kids that had grown up in church had never been able to sing songs where they said, you know, God, sometimes I'm not sure I even know who you are. And how are we going to teach them? Well, I can try to teach them through my sermons. I can try to point them out to different, you know, passages in the Bible, particularly the Psalms. Like, this seems normal, guys, if you would read the Bible. But what really gets that into their heart is to sing songs that are more honest about struggle. And again, this shouldn't surprise us because we're more than just brains on sticks. Music embeds things in us deeply, and it's not to be taken lightly. Why is that? Let me just say a couple things about this. Psalm 19, what we use for the call to worship teaches that the whole creation is proclaiming God's glory. You might even see that the creation is preaching at us about God's glory. Ted Turnow, 
um, has, has done some remarkable work on this. And he talks about this. He says, what basically Psalm 19 is teaching us is that everything God has made, which is everything, is stamped with meaning. Thus, everything that we make, music, art, medicine, everything that we make, we make with stuff that God has stamped with meaning. You could say that making culture is a way of dialoguing with God. Either amplifying what he's built into the creation or sometimes trying to rewrite the meaning. It's a good way to think about idolatry, actually. Idolatry is when you take something that God has stamped with meaning and you try and make it say something else. Like work, for instance. God says, I created work as a way for you to glorify me and enjoy me forever. To take the cultivated part of the creation the garden, and extend it to the whole cosmos. But how do we try to use work? Well, we try to use work to say, this is why I matter. This is why I'm better than you. This is why, this is the reason for my existence. Or we use it sometimes to say, this is how I can take care of myself and not really need you. One of my favorite, um, favorite parts of The Simpsons, you guys remember The Simpsons? Yeah, Bart has this wonderful prayer before a meal one time where he says, God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Ooh. That's how we live sometimes. That's how we use work sometimes. And here's the thing. The meaning that God has built into the creation keeps pushing back. Sometimes, actually, even people who don't know Jesus hear things the creation is saying that Christians have filtered out. So we don't have to explain away when some bit of culture, some piece of art, some piece of music speaks to us about something that's really true. And that's why, you know, the, the reading we did from Revelation 21, like God says that the kings of all the earth are going to bring their glory, their splendor into the heavenly city. So of course singing matters. Because culture matters. Because God created a world full of God-glorifying potential. A world full of God-glorified potential that no one culture can work out. We need a whole world. People from every rice, tribe, tongue, and nation. The kings of the earth to bring their glory into the heavenly city. And you know what Revelation also tells us about this heavenly city? There will be no unclean thing in the city. So how do you have the kings of all the earth bringing their glory and there's no unclean thing there? Only if in some sense God is not just redeeming souls but he's redeeming culture itself, transforming everything. It's a remarkable thing. Culture matters. It always will. That's why singing matters, not only in the world, but in the church. It's vital for forming us into a gospel-driven community. We're going to sing this hymn by John Newton, actually changing the order a little bit. We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to do uh, the Apostles' Creed and Communion. And so I want to introduce this song, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I love that John Newton, he's the author of Amazing Grace, I love that he included that word wonder. Because wonder is about what I learned from Charlie Peacock, right? That everything we think about is actually bigger than we realize. John Newton says, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. I love verse 4. Uh, Dr. Filson, now doctor, right? 
uh, lo- loves this verse. He and, he and I both agree on at least this one thing. Actually, we agree on many things. But, but we're particularly passionate about our agreement that verse 4 of Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder is probably the greatest verse in English hymnody. Where John Newton writes this, let us wonder, wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. That means the storehouse of mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Like the way this song goes, John Newton, the first verse is let us love and sing and wonder. Then verse two is let us, let us love. Verse three, let us sing. Verse 4 is let us wonder. Wonder means you never get over the fact that grace and justice join and point to mercy store. You never reach the depths of that. And then it, there's verse 6, which we rarely sing. He says, yes, we praise thee, gracious Savior. Wonder, love, and bless thy name. Pardon, Lord, our poor endeavor. He's talking about our singing. <laughs> Pity. For thou knowest our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And then this line I love. Wash our souls and songs with blood. For by thee we come to God. You know one of the reasons that we should sing? is because as 1 Peter 2.6 says. All of our spiritual sacrifices are made acceptable through Christ. Not because we sing so well. Or mean it so perfectly? We sing sometimes because we long to believe what we're singing. Sometimes we sing, Lord, uh, I love you, but help me in my unbelief. So as we sing this song, let us love and sing and wonder. And sing loud. Because it's not just good for you, it's good for your neighbor. It is. It has a powerful shaping effect. Let the word about Christ dwell in us richly as we sing. Let's stand together and sing.